0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Together, we aim to empower, educate, and encourage women to talk about our money. You can find more at fidelity.com slash time. Her Money is brought to you by PRX. Hi, it's Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. Thanks for joining me. Glad to have you along this week, as always. You know, every once in a while, my mailbox fills up with questions from people who want to know when we're going to do a show that focuses specifically on millennials, because as you all know... As we talk about all the time, millennials are a little different. Millennials are different in their approach to money, in their attitudes, their approach to saving, and you can't blame them. They came out of college during a lousy job market, saddled with more student debt than ever before, watching their parents struggle through the recession. Of course, that changes a person, and yet They have the same challenges that the rest of us do. They need to get it together. By that, I mean their financial act. They need to get it together and start saving for tomorrow, investing the money they've saved, protecting the financial lives that they're building, and pulling together a career that not only supports them but fulfills them. And that's what we're talking about today with Stephanie O'Connell. Stephanie is a millennial money expert as well as a millennial herself, and I was very happy to sit down with her at FinCon in San Diego. Stephanie, it's nice to see you. Thank you for getting up so early to talk to me. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So you've got a really interesting background and a background that... You wouldn't think would necessarily lead you into finance. You're an actress. Mm -hmm.
2: You've performed all over the world. Tell us a little bit about the journey. So I graduated college in 2008 with a degree in drama, and that is really a perfect storm of circumstances, (laughs) if I can say so. Um, But I was lucky enough to get a job out of college on the international tour of the musical Cinderella in Asia. So... it was my dream job, and I was going around the world, traveling and performing, and then around November of 2008, the producers flew out and said, oh, you know, the American economy just had a bit of a meltdown, and we're going to cancel the rest of the tour and send you all home. So there I am, January 2009. In your ball gown, were you Cinderella? <laughs> I was the understudy. I don't know if you know Leia Salonga. I do, uh, of She course. was Cinderella. Okay. So I was Leia understudy, which was a dream come true. That's amazing. Right? Yes. Um, so after my my little bubble burst, uh, I, I come back to New York, January 2009, young unemployed actress trying to navigate life in New York while taking babysitting gigs and personal assisting. And the next job offer I got after an, um, auditioning for a while was for $225 a week. And I just had this moment of, that is not a sustainable way of life. It's amazing, and we
1: all have that moment, I think, Mm -hmm. when we graduate from college where we're offered something that we really want to do, Mm -hmm. but the money's just not there. For me, I actually was offered an opportunity to be Jane Bryant Quinn's research assistant. I was working at Working Woman magazine. I was pretty much done with that job. I was Mm -hmm. looking to move on to other things. I met Jane through a mutual friend. She was and still is just somebody I revere because I think she's such an amazing reporter and translator of financial information and it didn't pay enough yeah. and I had to say I so want to do this but I can't afford to take
2: this job absolutely I think we always hear you know the trope you know do what you love but it's not just about, you know, career. It's about the lifestyle what you're doing affords you. And that's a more complete picture that I think we don't consider often enough. And finances, of course, are going to play a huge role in that. If I'm happy two hours a day performing and then struggling to make ends meet the rest of the day, that's not really a sustainable way of life. So how did you morph into a money expert? So somebody gave me a copy of Money Book for the Young, Fabulous and Broke. Susie Orman. Susie Orman. And I just had this moment of wait a minute, this is something very tangible that I can measure and use as a tool to kind of break this cycle of highs and lows between gigs and um, between fulfillment and between choices and trade-offs that I was continually having to make because I wasn't making enough money. And when I saw the way money was framed you know, through Susie and then I got all into the personal finance literature and just kept reading and reading and reading It became very clear to me that, you know, money didn't have to be daunting and I didn't have to be a victim of it. I could actually flip that narrative on its head and use money as a tool to kind of empower myself with very clear steps, very clear ways to write down and look at the black and white of the numbers and say, okay, okay. This is where I'm at, and this is where I want to go. And I can actually map out what that in-between needs to look like to get to where I want to go. So
1: what you're describing is a scenario that more and more people are living these days. And I really want to dig into it because we get a lot of questions from people who are living on a volatile income, you know, an income that changes from month to month, year to year, and still have to try to pay their rent. You know, the monthly bills don't change even when the income changes. And for a lot of these people, there is no safety net. And when I mean safety net, I'm talking about a benefit safety net. When you're working this kind of patchwork freelance life, you don't have a 401K. You're on your own for health insurance. You're on your own when it comes to getting all of the information that you need in order to cobble together this portfolio of protection that many people get from their employers. So let's start with income and move on to benefits and and talk through how do you tell people to deal?
2: Right. So, you know, my story is exactly this person you're describing. I'm 30 years old. I've been an actress. I've been a babysitter personal assistant and now an entrepreneur. And I've never had a steady income. I've never known how much money I'm going to make month to month. And so the biggest question I get too is, you know, how do you plan both short term, making ends meet, and long term? retirement, uh, savings, home down payment, etc. And so I've come up with a system that I call the make or break number. Mm-hmm. And I break it down into three chunks. One is my bare bones budget, my monthly cost of living, necessities only. So anything I need to live and work normally. This is your austerity budget. Exactly. And then I add another 10% to that because life is always more expensive than I anticipate. And then I add one more category in my make or break number, and that is a category for financial goals. So that could be debt payoff, it could be retirement, it could be short term savings, whatever it is for you. You know, map out your goals, break them down into small chunks, uh, monthly targets, and then incorporate that number into the make or break number. And then You add all those three things together, bare bones, budget, buffer, and financial goal target, and you have a monthly sum for the financial viability of your life. And you have to have a commitment to making that amount of money each and every month, and the reason I put financial goals in there is because I consider them as non-negotiable, as housing, as food. Because if we don't, then we're relying on credit card debt or you know any other forms of you know financial risk. Right. When I break
1: down a budget for people, I always say saving is the sacrosanct category, Absolutely. and you can borrow from any other category. You don't want to spend your auto allotment on a car, that's fine. Spend it on housing. I don't care, but you have to save.
2: Absolutely. You know, I tell people if, if, if you're trying to choose between two categories, that means you have a problem. That you're at break point, and so you have two choices. You can reduce your necessities, your cost of your necessities. And I think that's one thing people often overlook. They say, "Oh, this is my housing payment. I have to have a place to live." Well, there are ways to reduce that. You know, having roommates if you're single. Sure. Um, you know even negotiating your rent or um, refinancing your mortgage. And then the other side of the equation is making more money. And that's actually one I think a lot of people overlook. Uh, It's one I certainly overlooked because I bought into the narrative that I was a starving artist. And so it would always be a struggle for me to earn enough money to get past my make or break point and to make some real headway. And um, once I kind of like changed my mindset around earnings and really saw earnings as an opportunity to create more space in between what I need just to get from month to month and really supercharging my personal long-term lifestyle goals, I got really excited about you know increasing my income and enjoying the opportunity that presented.
1: Let me just take a sec to remind everyone that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we have worked so hard for. So, Visit fidelity.com slash it's time where you'll find more conversations like this one with Stephanie O'Connell. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, getting divorced, starting a new career or something else entirely. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. And we are happy to be back with Stephanie O'Connell. When you look at long-term savings, yeah. when you look at, and this, I don't know if this falls into your second category, but when you look at the 401k opportunity, the IRA that you need, the SEP IRA that's out there that many people have never even heard of, how do you cobble that together for yourself,
2: and what's the key to making sure it actually happens? So the key to making it happen is including it in this number that you're saying, okay, financial viability of my life is minimum X, and that includes long-term savings. I think if we start thinking about our long-term savings kind of as something we can trade off to go do something discretionary, that's when we fall into a problem. The other problem I see a lot of people have is, well, they'll find the money to set aside, but then they won't know where to put it, because if they are you know, on their own without the help of the HR department you know, mm-hmm. giving them the paperwork to start the 401k, they say, oh, well, I don't know what to do with this. And investing can seem like a very scary, intimidating thing, uh, and so, I think that's going to be really the big challenge going uh, hurdle going forward to really overcome, you know, what it means to take care of yourself in the long term, and to realize that's not a daunting thing, but an opportunity. And b- not only building that into your budget, but really taking action to let. Put your money in places to let it grow like a Roth IRA uh, if you don't have a 401k or if you're self-employed, those vehicles too. So um, I think the big thing for young people going forward is going to be being fiercely proactive About our finances, because I think the structure of corporate America, of the 40 year career path, we've already seen that shaken up. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Like 10 years, and it's like, what happened? And so for the next generation, This is going to be the new reality. And I think it's a contingent upon all of us to create frameworks that really support what it means to live and work well short-term and long-term in this new economy. Getting really tactical for a second.
1: What are your favorite tools and
2: tricks to make sure that all of this
1: actually happens?
2: Yeah. So I am a big fan of keeping myself accountable and I have a variety of strategies uh, that work for me and that I suggest to people. Uh, The biggest thing to keep in mind as I go through these is is testing and finding what works for you is going to be the most important thing because what works for one person might not work for the other. So one thing I really like to do is I like to automate as much as possible. Now, this is a big challenge sometimes if you have inconsistent income. If I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to make a $200 contribution to a savings account every month, that's all well and good. But if I have a month where I didn't reach my make or break number, well, maybe that's now overdrawing from my account. So... What I like to use are uh, apps that kind of hold me accountable in the moment just as much as a system of automation holds me accountable to a monthly target. For example? For example, um, one app is Mint. Mm -hmm. Another app is Level Money. Level Money is really fun because it tells you your safe to spend number. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great tool to have if you really are not sure of where you stand. It's very visual,
1: too. So if you're a person who doesn't really... Embrace the numbers. Yeah. Level money allows you to see it in images.
2: Absolutely. You know what I think of it as? I think of it as having a scale in your pocket while you're trying to be healthier mm-hmm. right so if you're going about your day and you like are really considering that piece of chocolate cake or that second glass of wine um you know it's easy to kind of give in the moment but if you have that scale in your pocket and you take a look and you measure and you're kind of teetering on the edge for your day you have what your limit is you might not make that decision yeah and Level money or mint, you know, they're all kind of the same in that regard, is that It's this kind of check-in of mindfulness of your money in the moment of decision. And that's where we tend to goof up because our emotions get in the way. I deserve this. I want this. I need this. And, you know, if we have that tangible reminder in our hand, accessible at any moment, then we can really stay accountable to what the real big picture is, even when we're tempted, you know, right this second to, you know, maybe grab something from the checkout counter for an extra, 20 bucks (laughs) stephanie o'connell where can we find you and what's next Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) So I'm over at stephanieoconnell.com, and I am on YouTube now at Stephanie O'Connell with a new series called Talking Taboo and Money Minute, where we're getting the money dialogue going among millennials and what these kinds of new financial challenges are for the next generation. And uh, in terms of what's next, it's really about reaching this younger generation And hopefully creating better answers to some of these questions of where do I go, how do I start, and how do I support a financial life that is full and exciting as much as it is viable every single day. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you so much for having me. And Kelly has
1: joined me in the studio. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Jean. So, you just got off a plane?
0: Just got off a plane.
1: Like 30 seconds ago? 30, not 30 seconds Not quite. Ago. Takes a little longer from fresh that. Fresh
0: or not so fresh off the plane and directly to the studio. Uh, well, I hope that you had a nice time home for the weekend. I really did. It was really nice. Arizona had beautiful weather, as it does this time of year, and I was welcomed back to New York City with... Lovely showers. Uh, it's cold and wet and gray yes. out there. So onward. What do we have? Our first question is from Amanda Goldberg on Twitter. She asks, at what age should I consider a second credit card? Hashtag boosting credit.
1: Well, well. Okay, Amanda, here we go. I don't really think you need a second credit card until something in your financial life tells you that you need a second credit card. In most cases, it's not necessarily an age thing, but usually... I like to see two cards in your wallet for very specific purposes. So one card is the card that you pay off in full every single month and I like to put as much spending as possible on that card and to earn frequent flyer miles or some other reward on that card, because in that way, the card not only pays for itself, it can more than pay for itself. The other card should be a very, very low interest rate card, and that's the one you use if and when you have an expense that you know that you won't be able to pay off in the very month that you make it, and that should only be used sporadically. If you are carrying a small balance on your card, if you're not paying off your balance every single month, there's no need for any sort of rewards card. In that case, a low interest rate card is really all you need, and that should get you going. I know it's not an age-based guideline, but that's a better way to think about it.
0: I've read other places that having three lines of credit established when you're looking to maybe buy a house is an ideal goal. Is that something to keep in mind regardless of age two?
1: Mortgage companies like to see a mix of credit. Um, having a mix of credit is one way to boost your credit score. And so if you're going out to shop for a car or a house, having that mix of credit is a nice way to round out your score and round out your credit profile. And essentially what you're doing is showing the Mortgage company that you have the ability to pay back various types of loans. So you can solve that problem with not just credit cards, but student loans, car loans, utilities in some cases that report to the credit bureaus. So it's not like you have to open another credit card just so you just have this. to open it. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes, especially for people who find the more credit cards they have, the more they spend right. opening that additional credit card is a
0: bad idea. Okay. Good to know. And our next question is from Maria on Facebook. Can you please address the Roth 401k? It is being offered at a new employer, and I'm not sure what to make of it.
1: Having a Roth 401k in addition to your regular 401k is, I think, a nice way, again, to round out your financial mix just like in a Roth IRA, when you make a deposit to a Roth 401k, you're contributing money on which you've already paid taxes. You don't have to pay taxes then when you withdraw the money in retirement. That can be really nice to have two buckets of money from which to choose, depending on what your tax rate is as you age. And so I like the idea of building a portfolio that's diverse in its tax treatment as well as everything else but look at yourself and look at your situation if you think in general that your tax rate is going to go down from where it is now in retirement you're better off paying the taxes later if you think your tax rate is going to go up in retirement you're better off paying the taxes now and that's really the way to make this
0: call Excellent. Thank you, Jean. And please submit us questions at Jean Chatsky on Twitter, at Jean Chatsky on Facebook. We're also on LinkedIn and at JeanChatsky.com. Thanks, Kelly. Nice to have you back.
1: In this week's Thrive segment, how to protect your internet of things. A few weeks back, my team was invited to a lunch to learn how to protect ourselves from being hacked through the many devices that make up the internet of things. Things like baby monitors, and DVRs, and anything connected to Wi-Fi. We figured we'd write it up over the course of time, but given what happened in the news when Twitter, PayPal, Spotify, Netflix, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, among others, were involved in a widespread hack through hundreds of thousands of Internet-connected devices like closed-circuit TV cameras, routers, and, yes, those DVRs, we decided sooner Was better. The Internet of Things is proliferating almost faster than consumers are learning the terminology. Smart thermostats, refrigerators, toasters, even Toothbrushes are available for purchase. Unfortunately, as my reporter Hayden Field learned from Jerry Irvine, who's the CIO of Prescient Solutions at a home hacker lab hosted by Hartford Steam Boiler, many of these gizmos are not very secure. So here's what you can do to protect yourself. First, Separate your normal Wi-Fi network from your Internet of Things Wi-Fi network. Virtual LAN, or VLAN as it's called, is a way to create two separate Wi-Fi networks from the same machine or router. And since they're separate networks, if the hackers gain access to one, they don't automatically have access to everything. Then a virtual private network or VPN creates a sort of encrypted communication tunnel between your PC and your Internet of Things. If you're not sure how to do this, and I would not be sure how to do this, the geek squad from a local IT store like Best Buy can come and do it for you for about 75 bucks. Just tell them you'd like a virtual LAN between your two networks and a VPN. Number two. Don't use public Wi-Fi ever. If you absolutely must use public Wi-Fi, you can pay for a subscription to a VPN, a secure connection from your device through another provider. Favorites from PC Magazine include iVanish VPN, which costs about $62 a year, and Anchor Free Hotspot Shield Elite, which costs about $30 a year and also has a free version. Number three, Don't broadcast the name of your wireless network. You can select to hide your Wi-Fi network's name in your settings. This way, people can only access your network and know it's there if they type in the name and the password. Be sure to change the default username and password if you haven't done so already. And check your insurance policies closely theft is usually covered but restoring systems compromised in an attack usually is not many insurance companies don't offer cyber insurance because of the frequency and steep costs of recent hacks but it's never a bad idea to call and check all right to recap Here's what you're going to do to protect yourself. You're going to separate your normal Wi-Fi network from your Internet of Things Wi-Fi network or hire the Geek Squad to do it for you. You're going to stay off public Wi-Fi. Don't broadcast the name of your Wi-Fi network and check your insurance policy to see if there's coverage available. Thank you for listening to us today, for spending a little time with me and my guest, Stephanie O'Connell. On her money. Stephanie, a big thank you to you as well for sitting down with us at FinCon. I really want to remind everyone to send us your questions. And not only that, but If you get a sec, please leave us a review on iTunes. Those of you who are listeners to a lot of podcasts know reviews are really important. And we get the loveliest emails from you telling us how much this show means to you. That's great. Keep them coming. They make us feel really good. But if you could share those same sentiments with the world, we would really appreciate it. Of course, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.